Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Jillian Peterson oversees the grimmest Excel spreadsheet you can imagine. She's a criminologist. Her database tries to make sense of mass shootings. It does that column by column, breaking down a shooter's biography into neat piles. There are the basics, name, age, gender, but also what Jillian calls known predictors of violence. So things like, did you have an interest in guns? Um, what was your family like growing up? Uh, how well did you do in school? Did you have a job? Were you married? Do you want to know how much a mass shooter weighed? How tall they are? It's all here. Jillian's database will tell you that 30% of mass shooters had a diagnosis of psychosis, and that only four of them were women. Jillian visits with shooters and their families, too, relentlessly updating her work. She's tracked every shooting of four or more people since 1966. It's now up to, I last got, I want to say, 189 different pieces of information. I thought of Jillian in January, after shooters struck twice in one week in California. I wanted her to look at her data and tell me, when it comes to mass shootings, are things really getting worse? Because it sure seems like it. Yeah, we've we've been on an upward trajectory, so they've been getting more frequent by decade. Yeah, I noticed that you said one-third of all the mass shootings in your study happened in the last 10 years? Yes, yep. So when there's another mass shooting, and shootings seem to have been relentless over the last month or two, are you like, uh, I have to haul out the spreadsheet again? Um, Kind of. I mean, first it's like, uh, we haven't done a good enough job translating this yet. Like, we're still here, right? It's here we go again. Jillian is driven by this belief that if she can just organize her database enough, she can get a little control over it. She hopes that somewhere in this puzzle is the answer to why these crimes get committed in the first place. And if she figures that out, she hopes there might be a way to stop them. You could give me a billion dollars and I'd still be doing this. I, it's fascinating to me. And it is like you're uncovering this mystery that can actually save people's lives. You know, it just feels super important. You must think a lot about why these shootings are ramping up. And, and like when you look at the database, I know that you look at how shooters describe themselves in their own words. 
Is there like one word that comes up again and again? Hmm. The ones that I talked to will definitely talk about how they hated themselves more than anything. And this was kind of their self-hate directed outward um, to force the world to see it. But like a dying star, like taking a lot of people down with them. Yeah, and forcing all of us to watch. Today on the show, inside a database that might explain why 2023 is off to such a brutal start. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Back before Jillian became an expert on mass shootings, she worked as a special investigator in New York City, researching the life histories of men on Rikers Island who were often facing the death penalty. So when she started creating a database about shooters, she knew that she didn't just want to collect information. She wanted to talk to people. This was not easy for a number of reasons. First, mass shootings often end in suicide, whether at the shooter's own hands or deliberately at the hands of the police. And the shooters that survive, they often aren't eager to share. Jillian ended up reaching out to about 30 people who were alive and behind bars. Of those 30, seven were willing to talk. I asked her what she learned from those conversations. So there are two of them I think I got to know the best. One, a school shooter who was young when he committed a school shooting. I think the people who chose to talk to us, you know, they're a subsample, right? They're the ones that I think had maybe done a bit more reflection. They're self-selecting. Exactly. Um, Had a bit more distance from their crime and could kind of think about it in a different way. They would say, you know, I I feel very disconnected at this point from the person who did that. Huh. So it's like they were observing that person. They weren't that person. Right. Both of those stories, I mean, just horrific, uh, 
buildup. And sometimes, you know, I was asking questions about, you know, sexual violence and physical abuse from their parents and stuff that they hadn't really talked about. So, I mean, they would say, one in particular was like, this is really hard. Like, I haven't dug into these stories and these memories before, but we really wanted to start, I wanted to start at the very beginning, right? Um, Like, tell me about when you were three. And then they were these horrific stories of kind of pain and anger and depression and hopelessness and suicidality, multiple suicide attempts, and getting to this point of hopelessness that then turned into real anger and just whose fault is it? But everybody who I talked to, it was planned to be a final act, right? It was planned to be a suicide. They just ended up in prison. Yeah. Eventually, I know you began thinking of these kinds of mass shootings as driven by despair, something more than just anger or trauma, or maybe just an accumulation of anger and trauma. When you started thinking about these events in that way, did you surprise yourself or were you expecting that? I was not expecting that. I didn't know what I was expecting, but I hadn't thought of these as despair crimes. Why not? They're so, they feel so deliberate, right? Like, who does that? Who does something this horrific, but in a way that makes their name make these splashy headlines? I didn't think that I was going to uncover that kind of despair and anguish um, that seems to be pretty universal at the core of these. You thought about these as narcissistic crimes, maybe. Maybe. And there is an element of that, right? There is an element of it's not just that I'm in despair, it's I'm going to force other people to be in despair with me, and I'm going to force you to see my despair, and I'm going to cause despair. So there is an element of that anger and narcissism and kind of looking for that notoriety and needing to be seen. But at its core, it is about, right, that self-despair. I think my listeners are probably familiar with the concept of of deaths of despair, but they may not be thinking about it in this way. You know, I think most of them probably think about deaths of despair and associate it with people who have been left behind economically or emotionally, and maybe it drives them towards drug use or addiction or otherwise self-destructive behavior. How does this mass shooting piece fit in with that? I think it is about kind of, here's what I expected, here's what I wanted, here's what I thought I was going to get out of life. And I didn't get it. And I can't seem to be able to get it. And no matter how hard I try, I can't get it. And so that leads to things like self-harm and addiction, which is where we typically talk about death of despair. It's just in this case, it's leading towards violence. Yeah. I mean, I think an issue some might have with this framing is that seeing these mass shooting deaths, these acts of violence as deaths of despair... While it might be accurate, it also encourages us to see the perpetrators with empathy when they've Mm -hmm. done something so unimaginably awful. So I wonder what you'd say to someone who's maybe having that reaction as they hear us talk. I think it's a really fair reaction, and I have it myself sometimes. We were very deliberate 
about interviewing victims of every mass shooting that we studied. Um, so if we talked to the perpetrator, we went. For, we also wanted to talk to victims. We just had to have that full impact. And like the ripple effects of these crimes are unbelievable when you start to sort of get into these stories, the devastation that they cause. And so in no way, I think, does our research try to say perpetrators aren't responsible or, you know, they're, they're the victims themselves. It's not about that. It is about we can't stop something from happening until we understand exactly where it came from. I don't think we're going to get anywhere unless we're willing to actually dig in and tell the deep stories of where these crimes are coming from. And that's the only way we're going to prevent future violence. So the victims that I've talked to, many of them, they want to know these stories, right? They want to understand because they don't ever want this to happen again. And so I think it's not about relieving anyone of responsibility. It's about saying, this is coming from somewhere. And we can think of these people as just pure evil monsters, but that doesn't get us any further in preventing the next one. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that your database is full of men. It is. And I wonder how you think about that, like the role of gender in this sense of despair that you're chronicling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about this for a couple of hours. Um, But I think there's a number of things happening there. I mean, I'm a psychologist, right? And so we know very generally that you can kind of externalize your despair or you can internalize your despair. And we know that women are more likely to internalize their despair. So depression and anxiety and eating disorders and self-harm, whereas men are more likely to externalize their despair through violence and things. We know that over 90% of all homicides are committed by men, that they just shoot things outwards more often. And that's always been the case. That's always been the case. Exactly. I think there's also this piece of like, the world owes me this and I didn't get it. And so now I'm extra angry. And so you have to feel that you are entitled to something that you didn't get that I think in the world we live in is more associated with that kind of toxic masculinity. Oh, God. As, as a woman, it just makes me like my blood's kind of simmering listening to you. <laughs> like, I mean, one observer described these mass shooters as being man boys who maintain a teenager's sharp sense of self-absorbed grievance long after adolescence with childish insecurity and lethally bold arrogance. And I get the sense you would agree with that, but also very much want to understand it. Right. It's like you can be angry about that or you can try to stop it and fix it. We'll be right back after a break. I want to go through exactly what your database has found in terms of what we know about shooters and how it might help prevent violent incidents from occurring. Like, I'll just go through, you have kind of a a top five list of, of what you found. Like, you found shooters are often insiders, especially at a school or workplace. They're people who are familiar to where they are, that they're in crisis, so they're having mental health issues and are often suicidal and showing suicidal ideation. 
They often study other shooters and and leak their plans to other people. And I get the feeling that you look at that and, and you just see you see ways to reach people. Like if someone is leaking their plans to someone, mentioning what they want to do, that's a chance for someone to reach out. But but when I look at the data, it just seems like the shootings keep happening. So where are we going wrong here? It's a good question. <laughs> so this idea that perpetrators are insiders, I think really requires a shift in thinking. You know, I for the last 20 years since Columbine, it's been all about heightened security and metal detectors. Hardening the school. Yes, harden, harden, harden. And hardening doesn't keep out insiders, right? These are kids going in and out of this school every day that know exactly how to get in and out. These are the kids running through five lockdown drills a year knowing exactly how the school's going to respond, right? These are the kids sitting next to your kid in class. And then so it's harder in the sense that we can't secure our way out of this, but it's easier in the sense that these are kids that we see every day and where you can notice changes in behavior and when we can catch leakage. I mean, it's something like 90% of K-12 through school shooters are telling other people that they're going to do this ahead of time. We studied cases where 50 kids knew it was going to happen and nobody Mm. told an adult. So how do we build those trusting systems, those trusting relationships? And when somebody is leaking a plan and saying, I'm thinking about this, our most typical response is punitive. It's, It's a criminal charge or it's expulsion or it's suspension, which escalates a crisis, it increases a grievance, and we have plenty of cases where somebody got expelled and then came back and did this. It's just not a problem we can punish our way out of. Hmm. I wonder if we can talk through a few recent examples of mass shootings so we can kind of analyze where the violence prevention got stuck. Like, we were talking about school shootings just now, and the shooting that I can't stop thinking about is the one that happened in Newport News, Virginia, with a very small child. This wasn't a mass shooting. He shot his Mm. teacher. Yeah. I think the child was six. Mm -hmm. But it's a horrific school shooting example. And it's especially horrific because everyone seemed to know there was something going wrong with this child. There were threats from the child to strangle teachers. The same day that the child shot the teacher... The teacher had warned they had a gun and the child had been searched. Parents had been going to school with the child to sort of monitor their behavior. So all these measures have been taken and it was still not enough. And I look at that and I see a little bit of what you're saying, which is this effort to not be punitive and no one knowing what to do alternatively and a tragic result. So what went wrong in a case like that? Yeah, I mean, it's so, you know, it's so easy to look back and say, like, this person should have done this and this person should have done this. And I I don't like to do that because you don't want to, it's nobody else's fault, right? It's like, what are the systems that weren't in place? Where did the communication break down? And what can we learn from that? And in that case in particular, I would say what went wrong is a six-year-old had access to a gun. right. And so that becomes conversations around safe storage, which the vast majority of school shootings take place with unsecured guns because they're too young to buy them. 
So that's one piece of this. But in terms of who's gathering all of the information about students in one place, so I advocate for things like crisis response teams or some people call them threat assessment teams, but how do you make sure in a lot of these cases we see that there's all these people in the building holding a puzzle piece but no one's putting them together, right? And so after something happens, it's like, oh yes, now that we put them all together, it was clear, but we didn't have any systems in place to do that because teachers are so strapped for time and resources. And so how do you build those systems in schools where people are communicating? Somebody is the keeper of all the information and knows, hey, we need to really get this kid some intervention, and then follow up and make sure it's working while having conversations with that parent about if there's guns in their house. So it's, you know, it's so easy to be like, oh, look, they should have done this and should have done this. But I think the best time to build those communication and intervention systems is when there's not a school shooting happening where everybody can kind of buy in and think about how do we reach kids in crisis in our school and how do we prioritize that? It's so interesting, though. I can see why each of those potential off-ramps would go wrong, though. Like, the American Academy of Pediatrics at some point was trying to recommend that pediatricians ask about gun access in the household, and it became very controversial. And, (laughs) you know, I look at a case like this, I'm like, it would be helpful for someone to have known that there was a gun in the household, but people may have just felt afraid to ask. Yeah. Um, Which that's something we have to work on, right? How do we have those conversations in a way that keeps parents engaged and feeling comfortable and unjudged, but make sure that they have the resources that they need and want to keep weapons secure? Research like Jillian's is often cited as a justification for buzzy interventions, especially in schools. Things like universal trauma screenings or curriculums that focus not just on academic concepts, but social-emotional learning. But when she spoke with shooters one-on-one, Jillian was struck by how powerful any simple connection could have been for them. One question I would always ask is, is there anyone who could have stopped you? Hmm. And they always would say yes. One I remember said, I think actually anyone could have stopped me, but there was no one. Anyone? Anyone. And that's a theme when we've studied averted shootings too, people who even went to school with a gun in their backpack and changed their mind. It was a human connection. It was somebody getting them through that moment, getting them a tiny bit of hope, getting them off the edge, right, and connecting with them enough to get them out of it. It Seems so hard to mechanize, though. Yeah, it is. I now very much believe that everybody should be trained in crisis intervention, right? Like how to spot the signs of a crisis, how to engage with somebody, what to say, what to do with your body, how to de-escalate people how to connect with resources, that that type of training to me is just as important as something like CPR, right, in terms of saving lives. And through this research, I feel like I've identified over 30 different potential prevention strategies. None of them are perfect. There is problems with every single one of them, right? There is not one thing. But when you start layering those things on top of each other, we use a Swiss cheese model, right? They all have holes, but when you start laying on top of each other, that's when you start seeing holes covered up. So it's not like each one of these things is imperfect, so we do nothing. It's like each thing is imperfect, so we do all of it. Yeah. It's funny because when a shooting happens, when a shooting happens, I I often hear Republicans repeat the same mantra that, you know, we need better mental health care often instead of something like gun control. I get the sense you'd say like, yeah, they they have a point. (laughs) We need better mental health care. We need a more robust system here. 
Yeah, I think something really unfortunate in our public conversations around mass shootings is that we've pitted gun control and mental health care against each other. We absolutely need both of those things desperately bad. We have people in a state of crisis who want to hurt someone else or others. And A, it's really easy for them to access a gun and carry that out. And B, we shouldn't have so many people who want to hurt themselves and others, and we should be able to prevent them from getting to that point. We have to do both. They're not, those are not contradictory things. They're absolutely complementary. When Jillian started her research, she was the one reaching out to shooters and their victims, trying to understand what they'd been through and how to prevent the next spasm of violence. But now, years into her project, she finds people connected to mass violence often track her down. They want to tell their stories, especially families of shooters who, like Jillian, are left to wonder if they might have stopped a killer in the first place. And I remember one mom saying, like, I can't even give myself permission to grieve that he died in this, you know, because he he caused so much other death. And it's just so awful that and it's just the, the ripple effects of the tragedy. And I never thought about like siblings of perpetrators who can never get a job again, because when you Google their name, that's all that comes up. And a lot of people go into hiding and change their names and just lives forever changed. And again, you know. Not to say that there are more victims than the people who died and those families. My God, it's, those stories are so heavy. It's just the amount of tragedy that comes out of these is so overwhelming. How do you keep from being overwhelmed by it, from being totally upended? Um, sometimes I can be. Like when I, when I was deep in interviews for this project, I was, I was too deep. Um, so I think taking lots of breaks and stepping away from it. Also, to me, the fact that these perpetrators who have done the worst, most horrible things you can imagine were once these four-year-olds who were okay, right? It's like, it's not just pure evil. It's, it's a pathway that we have to disrupt. And I think there's hope in that for me. Um, I didn't run into anyone or talk to any perpetrators where I was like, this is just a purely evil person who is on this world to do this. Like, these were people who could have gone in different directions. And I guess that keeps me hope. Do you feel like you'll see that path disrupted, like, in your lifetime? I sure hope so. (laughs) I don't know, though, but I hope so. Jillian, I'm so grateful for your time. Thanks for the research you do. Absolutely. Thank you. Jillian Peterson is an associate professor of criminology and criminal justice at Hamline University. She's also the co-author of The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. All right, that's our show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery, with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Meanwhile, I'll catch you back here tomorrow. <laughs> 